0: And there was a report in the the Daily Telegraph which describes the the protesters as a tribe of Negroes who were thronging the streets of Southampton. In fact, there were, you know, ordinary white British working-class protesters who were protesting against air. But that sense of describing the working class as Negro or Black It wasn't simply a slip of the pen, it was the way that they were seen. Um, The working class was seen as racially distinct in the same way as many now see whites and blacks as racially distinct, as racially inferior.
1: everyone, welcome back to the Global Politics Podcast at the end of The End of the History. This is BungaCast with Philip Cunliffe. Hello, Philip.
2: Hi. How's it going?
1: And myself, Alex Hochili, and George Hordo is away today. But we are delighted to welcome back on the podcast the writer and broadcaster, Kenan Malik. Hi, Kenan.
0: Hi. Good to be back on.
1: Yeah, it's great to to have you back on. Um, Kennan was last on in early 2019, that's episode 70, in defense of universalism, uh, which I'd urge you to check out and actually um, shouldn't have been four years, shouldn't have left it four years um, before having Kennan back on again. Um, But you know, time flies. Um, Kennan's the author of a number of books on intellectual history and political thought concerning questions such as race, human nature, multiculturalism, and free speech. Um, The last time Kennan was on, we were talking about migration and borders, but his latest book is on race and racism specifically. Uh, He has recently come out with a a book which came out last month, Not So Black and White, A History of Race from White Supremacy to Identity Politics, which came out uh, from Hearst. Now, on race and racism specifically, Kennan's authored The Meaning of Race, uh, which came out in 1996, and Strange Fruit why both sides are wrong in the race debate in 2008. Um, and then obviously a number of other books which touch on the topic as well. So I wanted to start off, Kenan, by asking you to place this book in the context of your wider work, and which I'm sure would be of interest both to those who are familiar with the, your other books as well as those who aren't. What does the new book seek to address that perhaps the others don't, or uh, how has the world changed in a way uh, since your previous books on race that you, needed, that you felt this new one had to address? Um, in a sense, both the world has changed, and I've learned
0: a lot more. Um, so it's a combination of the two that, that, that flows into this book. In when, in one sense, what's at the heart of this book is what's come to what I've come increasingly to, to see as a paradox in contemporary society, which is that we live on the one hand in an age in which most societies. Um, there is a moral abhorrence of racism, that um, albeit that in most um, race um, discrimination, bigotry still disfigures the lives of many. But we also live in an age in which our thinking is saturated with identitarianism, with putting people into racial and ethnic boxes. And the more we despise racial thinking, the more we seem to cling to it. And in a sense, the book is 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 an attempt to, to answer that question: what what how do we come to this paradoxical place by looking at the backstory, the history, because we have a tendency to look at issues and problems and ideas out of context, just as things in themselves. Um, and so, uh, rather than look directly at the, the quest of identity politics now, which which I do towards the end of the book. I lead up to it by looking at um, both the history of race and the history of um, the struggles against racism and, the, and, and to overcome racial categorization, and in particular how the two intersect, um, because it seems to me it's in the history of that intersection of how concepts of race and anti-racist struggles have related to each other that we begin to understand the nature of uh, contemporary politics.
2: You've mentioned in the past, um, I mean, you know, like you've talked a lot about how certain kind of specific events have triggered um, particular ideas or... Um um, or books indeed you know from fatwa to jihad obviously is very directly connected to um everything that happened around salman Rushdie. read Alidia, i mean you know and obviously that's still um very much um with us giving the most recent assassination attempt on him so i was just curious was there any specific trigger or event that prompted you to think i need to address this question
0: no particular event in itself um it's more that the question of identity and of identity politics has become um, so central to, to the way we think of politics, and I've become, um, in a way, fed up with the with, 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 with the shallowness of a lot of the debate about identity politics, uh, what it is, where it comes from, um, uh, and and kind of the disconnection of contemporary debates from past debates. So in a way, I'm trying to put contemporary debates in a long history um, and to um, uh, show where, where it fits in. For instance, um, the, the kind of identitarian politics are, are not new in two senses. On the one hand, um, what I argue is that the concept of race is the first politics of identity. And so to understand identity politics today, you have to understand the concept of race as a politics of identity, long before um, we, we thought of the phrase, the politics of identity. But it's also not um, new because there have always been identitarian um, strands within anti-colonial, anti-racist movements, uh, from the Back to Africa movements in the 19th century, Garveyism in the early 20th century, uh, Pan-Africanism, and negritude, and so on. But those have la- were largely marginal. Um, there were moments in, uh, at which they became um, major issues and, and, and um, uh, attracted attention. But largely, they were marginal. It's only in the post-war world that identitarian strength, and particularly in the last 30 years, that identitarian strands of um uh, 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 of anti-racism have come to dominate. So again, it's it's a it's it's a way of understanding why that should be so, um, rather than simply accepting that this is the way it is.
1: Mm. No, and it's interesting that I guess in the past couple of years, up to a decade, that there's emerged a poll of opposition, maybe not so much to identity politics, but to wokeness. Um, And I I want to dedicate some time to discussing that opposition as it exists today, um, a little bit more towards the end, and actually want to dedicate a fair bit of time to contemporary issues. But before we get there, um, I think it'd be worth uh, talking about what concerns primarily the first half of the book, which is this theme of how Western history from the 18th through to the 20th century has been one of entanglement of race and inequality on the one hand, and ideas of equality and common humanity on the other, about how enlightenment, modernity, and racism seem to emerge in tandem. So could you maybe give us a sense of this history, um, just to kind of set us up?
0: Yeah. As you say, modernity and in particular the post-Enlightenment world um, embodies the paradox of being the source both of equality and universality on the one hand and concepts of race and racial inequalities on the other. To say that race is a modern concept is not to say that prejudices or categorization of distinct human groups uh, were not deeply rooted in the pre-modern world. On the contrary, you know, that notions of difference and inequality and ideas of the inferiority and the subhumanity of certain groups were integral to pre bond consciousness. But that paradoxically is why such prejudices are so different from um, racial ideas in a modern sense, because only in a world in which the principles of social equality and a common humanity um, had become accepted, can ideas of inequality, racial inequality, and racial um, difference gain meaning? And that's why um, uh, we have this paradox of the, the, the of uh, uh, particularly in the post enlightened world of, of um, a world that is both uh, one in which um, ideas of equality are deeply rooted, and idea- and and the practice of inequality also deeply rooted, um, and it's that. It's, it's that um, clash between the ideals of equality and the common humanity and the practice of, of um, colonialism, racism and inequality um, that is at the heart of the book. Because most people assume that racism emerges when members of one race be- begin discriminating against members of another, that racism is what develops when races collide. And I argue the opposite. Um, that intellectuals and elites began dividing the world into distinct races to explain and justify differential treatment of certain peoples. The, the ancestors of today's African Americans were not enslaved because they were black. They were deemed to be black and an infi- distinct inferior race to justify their enslavement. Um, that kind, those kinds of inequalities would have made. Um, would have caused little problem, in the, uh, little issue in the pre-modern world. But in a world in which um, equalities become so important, then it becomes imp- important also to justify, explain, why such inequalities still exist. Um, you know, what makes that justification necessary is because from the 18th century, America, France, Britain, other European nations, began to define themselves by their attachment to equality and liberty. In practice, those policies were denied uh, to uh, much of the population, uh, to to, to much of the world. And race becomes a a means to bridge that contradiction by insisting that certain people uh, were by nature unequal and not deserving of equality and liberty. And it wasn't that race was deliberately constructed to explain away enslavement, say, or, or social inequalities. It was more that as social divisions acquired the, the status of permanence, so differences presented themselves as if they were natural, not social. And so in that sense, racial ideology is the inevitable product of the persistence of class, rank, People's differences of class and rank, and people in a society that that is fundamentally rooted in in in, in the concept of equality.
1: Mm. And I, there's an example in your book which if I could ask you to discuss a little bit, which I think captures very well how understandings of race have shifted, and it's one which I think would um, come as a bit of a surprise to many people who, and indeed listeners, who might be familiar with the contemporary debates but not um, some of the history, which was this episode in Southampton in 1866 where uh, the governor of Jamaica, Edward John Eyre, um, had been responsible for the slaughter of hundreds or thousands of Jamaicans and how that polarised opinion. And I think the reactions to that and some of the discussions there um, are maybe quite illustrative. It's one of the favourite examples that you bring out in the book. Sure. It... it,
0: it, it, the, the event you're talking about is a was a banquet in um, in, in, in uh, honor of uh Eyre, um, as you say in Southampton uh, to, to give a bit of background um john Eyre was the was the um governor of jamaica uh, and that, and there had been a, a major revolt the the moran bay rebellion um, in jamaica um in which uh, which had been brewing for Decades Ever since the abolition of slavery, in fact, because um, slavery was abolished, but uh, freed slaves was, were left bereft of any resources, forced to work for the old plantations, in the old plantations, um, uh, for virtually no uh, wages. So it was a form, it was recasting slavery in the form of, uh, of, of a uh, wage labour system. Um, so poverty, p- brutality, police brutality, all fed into a, a rebellion, and the 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 um, heir put it down with, with utmost ferocity. Um, as you say, um, the numbers killed are disputed, but it's somewhere between several hundreds and a couple of thousand um, are, are various figures given. Um, but there was no question about. Um, the, the ferocity and brutality of, of the response. And um, the, 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 the air's actions divided Britain. Um, there were two committees set up, one in support of air um, uh, to, to, to honour him um, uh, and, others, and another to um, uh, oppose to air. And these two different um, uh, campaigns clashed in Southampton um, uh, where there was a banquet in honour of air, And there was a report in the, in the Daily Telegraph which describes the, the protesters as a tribe of Negroes who were thronging the streets of Southampton. In fact, there were, you know, ordinary white British working-class protesters who were protesting against air, But that sense of describing the working class as Negro or Black it wasn't simply a slip of the pen. It was the way that they were seen. Um, the working class was seen as racially distinct in the same way as many now see whites and blacks as racially distinct, as racially inferior. Um, and if you go through much of the um, discussion uh, of uh, the working class um, in Britain in, 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 um, and in France, um, in the mid nineteenth um, century, you'll find um, example after example of uh, the working class as seen as being racially inferior, and and the, the the middle class middle class writers, intellectuals, raising their their hands in horror, saying, "How has it happened that we created these races within our um, uh, nations, which are meant to be?" Um, advanced and scientific and progressive, uh, and interestingly, the the many West Indian planters defended the the actions of air and of the brutality against uh, uh, black workers in, in in the Caribbean on the grounds that they're no different from uh, workers in Britain. This is how we would treat workers in Britain, and therefore, what's wrong with treating blacks in in Jamaica, in the same way, um, so it, it's it's that it's it's a very different concept of, of what race is and how how races were categorised um, in the nineteenth century than we would have today. And when I tell these stories, when, when I point this out to many people, uh, people kind of are incredulous. They think this must be a metaphor. This can't be the actual way they saw um, farmhands or. Or, or, or factory workers, it was. It was very much the way they saw um, the working class and the rural poor.
2: I wanted to um, probe a bit further at this, um, one of these kind of related contradictions, which is the relationship between uh, kind of, or the fact that you have the coexistence of racist ideas with this very uh, well-meaning humanitarian paternalism. Um, and this is something, I mean, I know you've addressed and it arises out of, as, as you've been discussing, this entanglement of ideas of racial inequality with common humanity. And so, I mean, the other element of this that I suppose is important is that over the past three decades, as, as uh, any listener to the pod will know, and any, I mean, anybody, in fact, will know that you know, humanitarianism and human rights have become one of the main planks of ruling ideology. To the extent that human rights provide the means by which all sorts of things are justified from social policy to um, foreign wars. Now, one, one thing that you've consistently stressed across your writing, including in the most recent book, is that those who um, proponents of racial thinking and people who would be understood as out-and-out racist today were nonetheless often also deeply concerned about humanitarian suffering um, of those they saw as racially inferior such as you know massacres carried out by british imperial administrators so could you um could you perhaps untangle this again this kind of apparent conundrum for us how does this how does racism sit with what appears as um benevolent concern
0: yeah an interesting way to look at it is the Dif- distinction between or the difference between the way that someone like uh, John Stuart Mill kind of be the, the lodestone of Victorian liberalism looked on uh what came to be called the Indian mutiny um and the way the Chartists with the working class radicals looked on on, on it um, and yeah. Mill was um uh someone who supported colonialism, He worked for the East India Company. And after the mutiny, he wrote a long memorandum in which he set out the reasons for, um, for, for having the East India Company. And, and he defended colonialism on the grounds that um, the East India Company had brought all these um, uh, advances uh, to, to, to India. Um, and that, that made, them, uh, made it important that his view Like that of many liberals, was that um, equality was was fine for for those who were for advanced peoples, but for peoples that he saw as childish or backward, you needed, in his word, despotism. They needed to be. It wasn't that they were um, incapable of civilization, but they needed to be shown how to be civilized by. uh, the civilised peoples of of, of Europe and America. The chartists took a very different view. They argued that um, what what the Indian Mutiny was was uh, the peoples of India um, defending or fighting for uh, national sovereignty against um, foreign rule. And they made the point that just as Britons had supported the Poles against Russia or the Hungarians against Austria, so they should support uh, the uh, Indians against the British. And in a sense, it's, 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 that it's what we're seeing are two different strands of universalism, if you like. We, we talk a lot about universalism, but two different strands. A liberal universalism, which uh, was happy to accept colonialism, uh, and, and some even slavery, and a uh, radical universalism for, for, for whom um, liberty and equality was not the prerogative of a privileged few, but uh, de- demanded that it belonged to all. Uh, and we see that from the Enlightenment right through to today, um, those two different ways of understanding looking at universalism.
1: So I wanted to ask one. Final question about, um, which is a more historical question, um, before moving on to some of the more contemporary concerns. Um, and one of the things I loved about the book, as I told you when I read an earlier copy about it, uh, earlier copy of it, was how it wrongfoots the reader at various points, or at least presents historical evidence and a narrative that runs contrary to contemporary understandings. Um, so, in effect, I think the book is very successful in in, in doing what you um, have set out to do. And one of these concerns how the um, how white identity was constructed and emerged precisely as white supremacy starts to wane, which again is something which runs completely counter to contemporary prejudices.
0: Well, it's not so much that white white identity emerges as white supremacy wanes. It is more that it becomes consolidated at the point at which whites, huge anxieties were, were developing about the possibilities of white supremacy. And I think to understand that, you have to look at the intertwined histories of the concept of race and of whiteness. Um, as we've just discussed, the the, the meaning of race was very different in, in the 19th century um, than it is today. I mean, we think of race primarily in, in terms of skin colour, continent of origin, black, white, Asian, and so on. Where in the 19th century, as we've discussed, um, it was a description of social inequality, not just of skin color, and therefore the working class could often be seen as uh, as white and many of the groups that um, we think of as white today were certainly weren't seen as white or at least were regarded as not quite white um, in the nineteenth century, um, not just Jews or Slavs or Spaniards or the Irish or the working class, but for instance, Benjamin Franklin thought that Germans were too swarthy to be whites. And he complained about um, the predominance of, of, of Germans in, in early America. The only group that was unquestionably white was um, Anglo-Saxon. And so through the 19th century, the meanings and boundaries of whiteness uh, was fiercely contested in different groups um, drawn in. Um, sometimes that were kicked out of, of, of what was defined as white. But in the early 20th century, there were three developments, I think, that transformed perceptions of race and whiteness into something recognisable today. The first was the coming of democracy, um, so that the the, the eventual extension of suffrage to the whole of the adult population um, was a process in which the view of the working class as racially distinct, Um, and racially inferior, which had dominated 19th century elite thinking, um, slowly faded from from public view. The second was um, the the expansion of imperial rule, exemplified by a scramble for Africa, um, out of which a sharper line was drawn between the white and the non-white world. But this coincided paradoxically with what you're, you're referring to, which was... A contradictory trend, which was growing anxieties about white supremacy. Um, imperialism provided for a sense of racial superiority. But the growing challenge posed by peoples of the empire um, inevitably created a sense of trepidation and fear. Um, a key moment was the victory of Japan over Russia in the, the russo japanese War of 1904, 1905, which was widely seen as a non-white people defeating in war uh, a white people, um, and then there was the First World War, in which which was kind of a global war in those terms of white nations against white nations, um, the, the 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 white supremacist, the American white supremacist, um, Lothrop Stoddard. Um, he worried that you know, white people had previously maintained a united front, and now they were locked in, into internecine battle, um, uh, uh, and everybody could see that, and, and this could only um, uh, aid the, 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 the aspirations of non-white peoples. Um, and then there were the struggles of uh, colonial peoples against European and American rule, um, uh, which particularly took off in the 20s and 30s. Um, and so we, um, what we developed here is a kind of new kind of white supremacy, rooted not in a sense of superiority, but almost in the terror of that superiority and of the world it had created slipping away. Um, it was the it was the age in which we had um, worldwide immigration controls, for instance, that they became um, imposed as a way of keeping non whites out of. Um, the white heartlands, as, as 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 somebody like Stoddard would say, and it was in this context that white identity became consolidated and racial lines redrawn, um, so that the, the 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 groups the 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 important distinctions now were no longer between Anglo Saxons and uh, whites, uh, Anglo Saxons and the Irish or or Slavs, um, but much more between whites. Um, broadly defined. And blacks and browns and yellows, as they still call them, um, broadly defined. And those became the, the kind of those major um, lines, um, uh, racial lines, became the way that people understood the world.
1: Right. And I mean, today, obviously, um, you know, advancing the narrative forward, you have what the, the defenders of white identity doing so um, in the terms of uh, diversity, um, rather, rather than um, any sense of supremacy, necessarily. Um, or rather, there's obviously an, an argument about supremacy there, I suppose, um, or a superiority, but it's, um, but it's a much more particularistic vision. Um, but before we get to that, I, I want to address... Um, some of the other ways in which understandings of race have changed and how, as it comes through in your narrative, it's become unmoored from other social determinants, so unmoored from any linkage with class, um, with nation and national histories, and maybe even with history itself. And there's an accompanying change, which has been a change uh, in focus from racism to this construct called whiteness, um, such that we get today something called global whiteness that seems to bear little connection to specific and different social structures and histories so I'm interested what is your account of how this notion of whiteness has developed and maybe even more importantly why it's developed what function does it serve?
0: Yeah I think you're right that the race is seen as something you know sui generis something as a thing in itself and an explanation for everything but also inexplicable except in its own terms and um, mm. And I think the, the 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 main reason for that is um, what I suppose what I'd call social pessimism, um, and 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 a sense of uh, a lack of belief in social transformation. Um, that exp- that is a uh, is, is an important component of of explaining not just whiteness but the rise of identitarian politics, um, because it seems to me that that um, that uh, rad- a kind of radical form of universalism has to be rooted in, in belief in social change, in belief that it's possible to overcome the fissures of race and identity, to build movements of solidarity and um, that can radically transform society. But that belief has ebbed over the past half century with a you know, disintegration of Wider social movements and radical struggles, the weakening of labour movement organisations, the disintegration of the left. And so people have looked to cling more fiercely to their own identities. Um, they're kind of hunkered down in their own separate cages, their own separate boxes. And the more one hunkers down, the more that box becomes the only way through which to perceive the world. And the more that one's race or identity looms larger. In, in in one's consciousness. And that plays has played an important part, I think, also in the, the rise of in the shift from thinking about racism to thinking about whiteness as the problem. Um, and it's been it's it's been that kind of shift that's come about almost unnoticed, but it's you know, it's it's it's, it's uh, mm. almost all talk about racism is now talk about whiteness or white privilege. And again, I think a lot, uh, much of that is the product of social pessimism. And if you take a figure like Derek Bell, who's perhaps the most significant founder of what we now call critical race theory, Bell, who was a, a legal scholar in the um, late 20th century, um, he saw racism as permanent and unmovable, that black people would never gain full equality. And he saw that not to accept that fact was to do great mental and emotional harm um, uh, uh, to to African-Americans. And Bell's work has been, uh, not many people have heard of him, but his work has been hugely influential um, through, I mean, everyone from Michelle Alexander to Barack Obama, um, quotes and 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 looks to, to Bell as a as, as a figure who, who kind of laid out the, the, the map of racism in America. None of them have been, you know, none of them have tumbled down the well of existential despair as far as Bell, but that pessimism has shaped much of contemporary thinking about race. So somebody like um Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's perhaps the most influential with contemporary African-American uh, essayists. He likens racism to a natural disaster like Mm. an earthquake or a typhoon. And and just as earthquakes and typhoons cannot be stopped by laws or by social movements, neither can um, racism. And that kind of transforms the whole way we look at anti-racism, because challenging racism while while believing it to be ineradicable Ne- necessarily cha- challenge shapes the, the character of anti-racism. So it prompts a shift from campaigns for material change to demands for symbolic gestures and representational fairness. Because if if racism is permanent and attempts to eliminate it is futile, then anti-racism becomes little more than a kind of public performance or finger-wagging at white people um, Uh, Or at best, an uh, an attempt to make the unfairness a little less unfair, and in that process, we come to see um, racism in terms of you know something that is also ineradicable, whiteness, Um, and it's it 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 is. So I think the, the key issue here, both in the rise of identity politics and in the in the rise of the sense of whiteness as being the, the source of racism is um, the, 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 the erosion of the old radical universalist movement and that sense of social pessimism. Um, that even though people may 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 not say that that's what that they are being pessimistic about possibilities of social change, that is what mm. underlies underpins. Um, much of our thinking about race and racism today.
1: Well, I mean, what seems to me particularly perverse about the moment and about the emergence of this discourse on whiteness and this pessimistic attitude to racism is that it's emerged precisely at a moment in time, a moment in the history of capitalism, where um, the old, formal, um, hard, caste-based forms of discrimination have more or less disappeared. And so what remains is um, kind of informal cultural attitudes, which might be prejudiced, bigoted, and so on, but where racism, um, and for that matter, sexism as well, um, and other forms of discrimination don't exist as the social forces that they used to. So I wonder if there's, you know, amongst radicals or, you know, uh, supposed radicals, an unwillingness to grapple with the fact that we are now faced with a kind of pure capitalism, a kind of capitalism where there there aren't these old kind of... um, feudal-like or caste-like structures to be dismantled in pursuit of political equality, but that um, the equality we have is real and it's the equality of the market. It just so happens that it's premised on a very deep economic inequality, but that there's an unwillingness to reckon with that, a sort of um, attempt to rebuild the old forms of discrimination in a way, at least intellectually, imaginatively, so as to have something to, to fight
0: yeah I'd put it slightly differently, which is that I think what's happened is that um, struggles against political inequality have been um detached from struggles against economic inequality, the political and economic have become um separated and that we live in we live in a in a world and and in in, in a uh, in a market system which is far more willing to um accede to ideas of political equality than it is of economic equality, Um, so that over the past uh, 40, 50 years, as you say, um, ideas of um, uh, those kinds of uh, raw racial divisions and other forms of political uh, inequality, divisions of political inequality, um, have um, not been erased, but they've they've been um, uh, reduced, um, eroded to, to, to a large degree. And we talk forever about economic inequality, but nobody thinks we can do anything about it. That's the, mm. that, that's part of the, the 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 issue of social pessimism. It's, it's like one of those issues that we think will um, uh, forever be here. Um, and so, in a sense, uh, you know, capitalism cannot live without economic inequalities. Whether it can live without political inequalities, I think it's an open question. Um, but what we call anti-racism today diversity in a sense, it's not really anti-racism and does not really eradicate racism. Um, um, and to a degree, if you look historically, the, the, one of the important aspects of racism was that it was a means of disassembling class coalitions, um, sometimes deliberately, it, for example, in the um, with the rise of Jim Crow, which was deliberately introduced um, in the in in the eighteen nineties, um, because poor blacks and poor whites had come together um, to challenge um, elite rule in in southern in in the southern states, and and that ferocious campaign of uh, anti-black um, sentiment uh, was was was. Developed as a way of, of and a segregation of blacks and whites, and uh, was, was was developed as a way of um, breaking up that coalition. Um. So, but but and, and and more broadly, racism has become a means of of um, not deliberately, but but, uh, but nevertheless become a means of of um, undoing class coalitions. And in that sense, um, you know, it, I think it still plays that role today, um, uh, though, though in, in mean, a different way that than it would have been in the past.
2: One thing, uh, working on universities, um, and I, I mean, I imagine you've seen this too, Ken, um, in your campus talks and, and so on. One thing that strikes me is how extraordinary um, – how extraordinary! Kind of, in one level, there's a very fantastic kind of, albeit superficial, erudition to the um, to the kind of the official anti-racism in terms of the range of thinkers that they invoke. You know the kinds of um, theories that they put forward. Um, you know, and stretching even to some stretching to some genuinely um, uh, you know sophisticated kind of thinkers. I mean, I remember, like in um, I remember. Um, how oh, um 15 years ago for instance maybe 20 years ago CLR James was very much kind of you know a ra- the figure that you'd only hear about in fairly kind of limited radical circles um Marxists and Trotskyists might be familiar with the name and so on and some socialists but you know in the last five years or so I've been amazed to see at how far say um uh, CLR James has become kind of a name that is um just kind of common among in you know on among campus radicals, so I guess what i'm curious about or I want to push you a bit more on is how far these how far anti you know the kind of these ideas of anti racism in reproducing racial categories they serve many of the similar kinds of functions like you say of um, disabling the formation of larger majorities that might be kind of more threatening um, in material terms or in institutional terms even um, by creating these, you know, reifying categories and preventing people from um, articulating more common common concerns. I mean, it, it strikes me, you know, that there is a logic to it in as much as, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, all of this stuff seems to me—I mean, it's a point I've made before on the podcast—but it's kind of the ideology of the human resources department. You know, it's a way of kind of managing large organizations in which trade unions are either non-existent or cowed and um, constrained. And this is the this this kind of ideology of official anti-racism and diversity is just the way of manipulating and organizing contemporary capitalism. In a particular, you know, in a particular kind of institutional setting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you could say that CLR James has become more popular when the kind of class politics he espoused has become less plausible. Um, no, indeed, and, yeah. The, uh, and you know, you can say the same about someone like Franz Fanon. I mean, I mean, Fanon was 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 uh, more ambiguous about this than, than CLR James, but nevertheless, um, what. People take from Fanon um, is only one aspect of, of, of his his thought, the, the more universalist sense of argument that he made is completely um, put aside when people talk about Fanon. So, so yes, um, these kinds of figures become um, uh, representative of a particular way, of um, a particular way of looking at race, by actually um, taking out the really um, radical revolutionary aspects of their thought, um, uh, and yes, the in a way, what we have now is that equality has become retranslated as diversity, um, and that um, it's as if uh, you know diversity, uh, achieving diversity somehow achieves equality, and it doesn't. Um, um, yeah. Because uh, you can have a diverse world which is deeply unequal, which is uh, where we're moving to um, today, and so it's almost diversity almost becomes an alibi for the failure to 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 to, to achieve equality, and I think that's the problem.
1: Yeah. Turning to very contemporary um, matters, I think, because it's a it's a phenomenon of maybe the past five years, 10 years at the most, which is that with accompanying the so-called Great Awakening, you've also seen the emergence of a pole of opposition to it, um, limited still probably, but one which um, goes by the name communitarian or post-liberal, um, as well as various associated um, sort of ideas and ideologies, and so you're critical in the book of um, one such thinker, Matt Goodwin, for instance, for his well-known framing of a cultural conflict between somewheres and anywheres, um, and it's it's a pithy formulation, as you note, but it's also problematic because it erases the radical universalist tradition that you know you've been defending um, here, that you def- defend more generally, um, and. Um, and and it erases this tradition, which would be critical of uh, liberal individualism or of the sort of thin cosmopolitanism of the of the World Economic Forum, if, if I could be those anywheres, um, and presents the only uh, pole of opposition possible as being the communitarian one. Um, and you, you're trying to kind of um, split those apart, or or, or kind of pr- pr- um, point to a kind of third option there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's David Goodhart, by the way. The the somewheres, anywheres. Um, Sorry, I, I know what I said <laughs> <laughs> um, What the post-liberal communitarian critique um, presents is that there is only one way of challenging liberal individualism, and that is through a, a kind of um, communitarian viewpoint. And there are two broad problems with that viewpoint. First is that it's not the only way of challenging um, liberal individualism I mean, the radical universalist uh, tradition did so um and did so from a very different perspective um about the kind of society that we want um in place of 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 of, a, of, of one that is um atomized or fragmented um in a, in a, in a liberal individualistic way but the, uh, the 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 other aspect of it is that the 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 post-liberal critique is itself rooted in the politics of identity. Um, The worries about immigration, anxieties about the de-whitening of communities and so on. And so I think we need to, um, those of us who are consistent in our our, our critique of the politics of identity need to challenge not just um, the openly identitarian politics, but also the hidden identitarian politics of Uh, the 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 post-liberal or communitarian critique and it's a it's it becomes a real problem because um in much of mainstream conservative as well as in post-liberal thinking many of the tropes of um the far right are are represented um the, the anxieties about whiteness for instance um um quite often the the um the uh, the great replacement theory in, op- in, in, in um, as a critique of immigration um the great replacement theory being the idea that um, the elites are, uh, are using immigration as a means of replacing indigenous populations indigenous white populations w- w- with pliable migrants um and so on and that, and the in, in a way you know we live in a world where where um conspiracy theories have, have a lot more purchase and in which in which these kinds of identitarian arguments also have a lot more purchase and one of the um one of the consequences of the left mainstreaming the politics of identity is that it has allowed the far right to um to rebrand racism as white identity and many on the post-liberal communitarian um uh, milieu um have adopted that argument too phil
2: yeah so just to push you on this point so you frame i mean you frame the issue in terms of kind in terms of the um the far right, or it's you know the way in which um, certain far right ideas have gained credence, I suppose, in the contemporary context by this kind of um, inadvertent, I suppose, conspiracy of coincidence between identitarian left on the one hand and post liberal communitarianism on the other. But I mean, I'm, I suppose my concern is, you know, that the far, I mean, the far right is no meaningful political threat in advanced liberal democracies um and so surely we can't frame our problems in terms of the significance of um you know a growing kind of fascist menace or um or in terms of the, the you know the far right kind of gaining in electoral strength our problems surely are ones that are um are not those of the threat of a renewed fascist menace
0: i'm not arguing about renewed fascist menace i'm talking about the way that These kinds of arguments have become mainstream. That's the issue. The the issue isn't isn't the far right pushing this. The the issue are mainstream um, uh, intellectuals, um, commentators pushing this, Um, and the dangers of it. You can see in the way that class itself has become racialized. Um, You can see we talk about the white working class, and when we talk about the white working class um which is a, a, a not a useful phrase at all but when we talk about the white working class it, it's as if the whiteness matters more than the working class location so that the problems of the white working class aren't which with, with, the problems are to do with the fact that they're working class have come to be seen as to do with the fact that they're white um and that uh, the, the notion of, of, of class itself then becomes racialized in, in two ways. One is this idea of, 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 of um, attaching whiteness to, to, to the working class. The second is to view minorities as belonging to classless communities. That as if class doesn't matter um, to, uh, to 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 black people or Asians or, or any form of minorities. Um, and so what that does is allows um middle class minorities to to um to, to, to take center stage in in, in in these discussions and to push the needs and um uh, aspirations of working-class minorities um to the side um so they, they get uh, marginalized in the same ways as as as, 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 as the, uh, the 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 needs and aspirations of, of white working class gets Uh, Marginalised, and so rather than seeing this as a um, issues of class, what 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 what, from both left and right, we um, racialise those issues, Um, and that to me seems to be the problem. And if if you look at a lot of the writings of um, uh, post liberals or communitarians, um, it's there. And um, that's that, that that's that's a, a strand that runs through their thinking. And that's the problem. It's, it's not this kind of I'm not talking about a fascist menace. I'm talking about these ideas being becoming central to the way we start thinking about issues of um, equality and inequality, of diversity, of, of class and so on.
1: All right, excellent. Very good. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. We wanted to keep you on to discuss um, more prospective issues about the role that race may play in um, future geopolitical conflict and so on. But maybe we'll have to do that another time, Ken. But thank you very much. Um, I would urge listeners to go out immediately and get a copy of Not So Black and White. Um, it, it is really excellent. So, um, And I'm sure that has come across from, uh, from the conversation we've just had.
0: Thanks. It's been a pleasure being on again.